You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. You're listening to episode 281 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Well, listeners, I have a special treat for you today. Sean is back and he just shipped a very difficult and interesting feature that I'm going to get to ask him about. Welcome back, Sean. I'm back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us, what was the problem that you were trying to solve? Yeah, so uh, we'll see how effectively I can describe it in words. But um, so a teeny bit of back story from um, that's a, a tiny repeat off of the previous episode that I was on for. But so so we make software that um, large construction companies use, uh, companies that build roads and bridges, what they call horizontal construction. So, so we make uh, software that they use to plan, execute, and then uh, analyze and improve their operation. And so, so every day when a crew is going out to, say, pave a highway, um, you know, the, the sort of crews you'll see out on the highway that block the road for the night, they plan what the day will look like. And, you know, it may be, okay, we're going to start at 8 p.m. and then go for four hours at this rate of production and then have to take a break as we move equipment. And then we'll resume and go for three more hours at a slower rate or a faster rate or whatever. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. So they they plan out these segments. Imagine like a little like lines being drawn over time that describe how quickly things are going to go. And then we have, so our, our software tracks how things go sort of minute by minute, you know, like what the actual production is as compared to what the plan was. And um, we have functionality uh, to uh, sort of capture incidents around production um, that happen so that they can be uh, analyzed for their root cause and then remediated through action items. But as you can imagine, uh, uh, people are not that dependable in terms of generating incidents themselves. And there are two types of folks that would, either the frontline managers that, you know, whose responsibility it was to build the road that night, who may be busy with other things, or maybe they'd rather not, you know, record every one of their mistakes along the way, or the managers who ideally would be reviewing the work every single day and night to determine how things went against the plan and then you know providing feedback where there is a discrepancy and then you know taking the process from there to continuously improve but managers are managers and they're not always that dependable either so um, the feature was to uh, automatically detect all of the incidents that happened where um, the actual production deviated from the plan by enough that it would matter for further sort of analysis, um, uh, either if the production was over or under the plan and including multiple incidents in one shift that would each make sense given that, you know, the, the sort of plan would be reset every time an incident happened. You know, so imagine you were going for an hour and then things broke down for an hour. Uh, now, when you resume, the plan is, is as of, um, you know, if you were an hour in, even though you're two hours in at that point. So, so anyway, so, so that's what the, the, the feature did is to sort of automatically detect what, uh, incidents happen and then generate those production incidents so that they can be analyzed. So imagine, you know, sort of automating what a perfect manager would do if they were actually reviewing the work every day. 
Oh, that's so cool. So is the idea is that you're getting real-time feedback throughout the job or when the job's complete for the night, then you are prompting the user to say, this is what we detected happened. It's a good question. So we, um, the first version of it is at the end of the job. Um, not that, I mean, I think, I think that the, the question is really on the nose because the goal would be to detect as soon as possible. Um, the reason that we shipped, and I think this is sort of an interesting uh, choice that a programmer has to make. So the reason we shipped um, uh, uh, the feature where we would wait until the job was complete is to get around the problem of false positives due to latency in um, information around actual production, right? So, it, because then, but, but we don't, we actually think that the right thing to do in that case is even if an incident apparently happened and you find out later that it was only because your visibility into reality was temporarily blocked for some reason, that that's an incident of a different sort. That's an administrative incident where you're like, well, maybe production wasn't affected, but our ability to see production was affected and that has its own implications. Um, but we didn't, um, you know, we, we decided to sort of ship before we had the, you know, that all thought through because it's probably an equal amount of work to think that through. And, uh, and there's quite a bit of value that was sort of stored up in, in solving the, sort of incident detection at the end of the shift. So might as well ship it then. I think it's such an interesting problem because you're building this so that managers have insight into the job and for the overall company to understand the incident so that they can be better and likely save money and retain employees and whatnot. But you're dealing with another user, as you noted, that is afraid of having their mistakes revealed. So, you know, what kind of considerations did you have to put into that as you were building the feature? Well, it's a good, I mean, let me split that into two parts. So, I mean, I think the first part of the question is interesting and in that you, you said that, you know, we build this for the manager and that's not real. I mean, I kind of get the point there, but I don't know that I really see it that way and that um, we, we built the feature as if it was the manager is sort of how I'd put it. Um, in that, you know, in a perfect world, the so, so, you know, what companies are trying to get around is the fact that, you know, managers are, are really the same as the people they're managing, right? It sort of turtles all the way down. And, and um, what we want is a more dependable manager. That's really the issue here, right? I mean, the, is, is, if you think of that, you know, manager's job is to sort of set expectations and then provide resources as needed and then provide feedback on how actual um, performance was and then you know eventually provide consequences based on um, how performance sort of trends over time against expectations and um, as most of us know that have had managers you know managers themselves are pretty inconsistent so our objective is as much to sort of do the work of the manager as it is to you know provide a tool for the manager and I think it's both you know frankly it's not one or the other but um, I think that that distinction is really interesting. Like I, I always think about, you know, do we write software for, you know, is, is, do we write software that people are using or do we write software that's using people, you know, to help it figure out what to do. And I think that that simple question on a feature really reveals a lot of, a lot of things. Um, but anyhow, to the sort of point of your question, which is, you know, what about the, the, um, you know, what, what consideration did we give to the sort of you know, people effects of having, you know, Big Brother watching more carefully. And 
I think it's I think it's a it's an interesting topic in that there there can be hard feelings between two people when one is managing the other and and the person being managed feels like you know there's inconsistency from the manager because they see you know a, a different manager providing a different set of standards or the same manager providing different standards to different people that they're managing also and in my experience when you write software that's doing the management um it it may be more um, consistently difficult, but at least it's more consistent. And, you know, most people, when they're asked what they want, they just want a fair shake, right? They want to be treated the same way as everyone else and know what to expect. And software's pretty good at doing that, right? It's, it's, it's going to dependably do the same thing every time. And if there's a bug and someone objects, and then it's fixed, well, that, the, that problem's not repeated in the future. So I, I think that once you kind of communicate that to everyone, which is, hey, we're just trying to, to um, be consistent and you know, consistent both you know, with you and then consistent across people uh, and also be transparent so you can see exactly the way that we're thinking about um, how uh, to, to evaluate performance against expectations, that that's kind of a good news story once you get past the change bit. Um, at, at least, I mean, at least that's my overall experience. I think individuals may feel differently, but on average, I think that's the case. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm also in the business of fairness as well. You know, we have event tickets that go on sale that are highly coveted. We have to make them available on the website, the phone, and the box office all at once. You know, we dealt with Hamilton last year and we have a lot of other shows that are coming up where people really mm. want good seats. And to your point, we write software so that we can be fair because, you know, sometimes a really high quality seat is at a lower price and everybody wants that seat. And so in the end, we want to say that we gave everyone an equal opportunity. Our queuing software, what it does is before the tickets even go on sale, it randomizes everyone who's shown up before the tickets go on sale. Now, some people get angry about that because they might get in line at midnight, but at 8.59, they get randomized and they might go to the back of the line. But we do that because we feel that that's how we're going to deliver the closest thing to fairness and we're giving everyone really a fair shake. Now, do, do you are, are you explicit about all of that to the users so that they understand kind of, you know, the method behind the madness or is is the method a bit more private you know maybe not confidential but just you know sort of shielded from the user and and uh, you hope that it's sort of the fairness is kind of felt in the outcomes no that's actually such a good question so we went years without really saying that because we hadn't had a large scale on sale where basically all eyes were on us but when we knew Hamilton was coming, we knew that we had to be more explicit about it. So not only did we publish an FAQ page that was sent to all of our users ahead of time, but while they were sitting in queue, we actually had one person who was devoted to messaging those people. So they understood why they were in a certain place in line. And really, if you were clever enough, you opened many different browser windows and tried to randomize yourself into a higher place. But you'd be surprised how many people didn't figure that and really did stand in line in a randomized position. Yeah, I think that's the tension, isn't it? You know, between it's sort of if you reveal the algorithm in its fullness, then, you know, the most enterprising, you know, users or customers or, you know, subjects or whatever it is, 
you know, they may figure out the way to, you know, look relatively better without doing actually better um, or get better results to your example, um, you know, outcomes in, in terms of tickets um, than someone else, even though they were supposed to have an equal weight. But, but I mean, the other side of it is that if you don't explicit, if you don't sort of make what's implicit explicit, then people will just invent all sorts of narratives and in, insert them in, in the void. And, you know, which is worse? Like, I, th I think that I tend to believe now that it's better to be explicit and incur the cost of, you know, sort of unfairness that comes from some people being a bit more, you know, willing and able to exploit the nuances than others. But I, but I think it's a really interesting question and, and an interesting trade-off to sort of figure out. For sure. And going back to your feature, I think it's all about how you approach the users about what you're doing. So did you have to put some sort of twist on the naming? Like, how did you approach your users? Did you roll it all out at once or are you actually beta testing it with a couple? Um, well, uh, it's sort of, it, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. So, so we've had the production incident feature for quite a while now. That's the sort of manual, like the, the, the way to store that something happened. And we've had the job production planning for a long time and the various analytics around it for a while now too. Um, what we didn't have, and so we've been sort of beta testing ourselves and, and with customers, the sort of analytical approaches that take you from here's a plan, here's the analysis of it. Now, what are the you know, value adding incidents to record for, you know, follow up um, root cause analysis and remediation. So we've had that, you know, we, we've had this sort of workflow, but we didn't have the automation to, to actually bridge the two to say, okay, that was the plan. And here is the actual now, you know, um, the software is going to make the judgment around what areas need further review to figure out if there's something to learn and something to change. Um, so, so on the algorithm itself, we, we've kind of for probably about nine months been testing different you know, techniques and thresholds and approaches to uh, get the signal to noise ratio correct so that we're not creating too many incidents such that they all become meaningless. And we're also not missing any that could have really yielded some interesting insight and positive change. So that was sort of part one. And then... Um, that got us to say two weeks ago. And at that point, um, so I felt like we had a good enough understanding of uh, the problem to uh, do the sort of work of actually writing the algorithm, right? Like to say, okay, we, you know, we've seen every case that we can imagine. Now, how do we write a single algorithm that'll, that'll cover all the cases at once? Um, and that took, you know, I don't know, maybe a handful of days, really. Uh, it didn't take that long to write it. And then um, from there, we went back and tested it um, sort of admin only, right? Like we had um, just admins could see the results of the detection algorithm. And then just sort of manually said, does that make sense or not? And given that we um, use TDD in general, and I use TDD in general, it was a little bit different because it, it, TDD didn't quite work. I, it, it was a little bit too difficult to sort of generate a big set of test data that then for each we'd have an exact sort of output we expected. It was more like we'd know an error when we saw it. Um, so instead what we did is generated, I don't know, 15 or 20 real world scenarios that we could then run the algorithms again or against over and over again and then compare the output of the suggested incidents against the eye test of what would make sense to us as people. 
um, that know the domain pretty well. And uh, anyways, so uh, we kind of had that corpus of test jobs to work against and then would run the algorithms again and again and just um, both tune the algorithm so it didn't make any mistakes and then tune the parameters of the default parameters of the algorithm so that um, uh, it was sensitive enough but not too sensitive. And then once we had that, we said, okay, now the algorithms are right. Um, and now it's it's time to actually hook it all up together so that it makes the, you know the um, we have the settings to control whether or not the automatic incident creation happens on a given plan, given some context or for a given customer, given their preferences and the rest. And you know at that point, that's more sort of just typical software development. but but to your question about rolling it out, we um, actually reached out to a couple of, uh, uh, our biggest customers yesterday when it was clear we were going to finish the beta version today and just ask them if, if they uh, if they wanted to be uh, you know have it released to them um, when we finished it sometime this week and and you know they were pretty enthusiastic about it so um, you know we included them you know we don't make software that's used by hundreds of thousands of people it's more like thousands of people and tens of customers so in general we have a pretty tight relationship with almost every I'd say with every customer user that, that is using our software and, you know, we don't work with all of their users, but, um, you know, it's, it's a small enough customer base that we can uh, kind of provide a pretty one-on-one -on -one experience about deciding how to actually uh, manage the beta process. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Heffler & Co. A good font is one of the best ways to make your project stand apart. At typography.com, you'll find the work of Heffler & Co., creators of stylish and high-performance typefaces. Their fonts are used by organizations like NPR, cultural institutions like the Guggenheim Museum, and by the people we love, like the Office of Barack and Michelle Obama. And now you can use their fonts, too. H&Co's well-curated library and one-stop licensing options make choosing the right fonts simple, so that you can spend less time looking for fonts and more time using them. H&Co has been designing typefaces for over 30 years and knows how to help designers avoid the pitfalls of using a less-than-perfect font. At typography.com, you'll find lots of options, all of them good. Every font family is built to the same high standard and is designed to have everything you need and nothing you don't. You'll find fonts that have well-thought-out families with great language support and even the most obscure characters, plus tons of tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you get the most out of type. Whether you're designing a website, an app, or an entire identity, H&Co makes it easy to choose the perfect typeface from their library of over 1,500 fonts, including classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new favorites like Isotope and Operator. The Ruby on Rails own logo uses their Whitney and Archer fonts. You can try the whole Heffler & Co. font library right in the browser at typography.com. And now for a limited time, as a Ruby on Rails listener, you'll receive 10% off your next purchase from H&Co. Use code RUBY. R-U-B-Y, for your discount at checkout. Thank you, Heffler & Co., for sponsoring the show. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, we talked about this in episode 272, and so listeners, you can go back and listen uh, to hear more about Sean's business, which I definitely recommend. But what I find so interesting about this is that the technical implementation was probably not that difficult, but it was the algorithm that you probably spent the most amount of time on, which is yours, I mean, no one else has that algorithm, and it's probably what makes you really valuable. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that there's some truth in that. Um, 
Yeah, it, I mean, the algorithm is interesting. And then in the end, um, as with most algorithms, it's not that much code, really. Um, it was figuring out, I, I found the process of ping-ponging back and forth between imagining all the things that could happen, right? So just, just imagining the sort of shape of a planned production curve and then an actual production curve. And, you know, just to be real about it, like, so a job could start late, but then go really fast, faster than expected, and then level off. And that's one shape where it could start on time and go, you know, as expected for a while and then drift, or it could start on time and then have a big gap and then go ahead of schedule, you know, you all, all, all sort of all manner of, of uh, shapes of actual versus expectation. And um, so I found it pretty fun to imagine what all those could be and then sort of imagine a uh, an algorithm that could that could handle overproduction and underproduction cases sort of equally well that could account for the fact that you know a prior incident on the same job changes your expectations for the time after the first incident and and you could have a mix of overproduction and underproduction incidents in the same job and so sort of doing the bookkeeping to figure out where you are against plan at any given time to sort of you know do that offsetting correctly and calculate the net impact correctly just that that process of imagining things and then using that corpus of real examples to test against and then that helps your imagination to then you know go in new directions um i found found that to be pretty exciting and i think you're right that there's you know having that nuanced of an understanding of things is is probably what's valuable that's probably true so as you mentioned, you're looking at thousands of customers. What are your plans to make sure that this new feature is working correctly? I'm sure it's going to be a bit more manual at first, but what are you, is your overall plan? Yeah, well, that makes me think I should think of a plan to do that. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, so every day there are maybe 50 jobs that complete maybe more than that, maybe 60 that complete that, that would be subject to this algorithm. And it goes up over time, but it's you know under 100 right now. And so we work with customers, we'll just look at every single one of them, which sounds like a ridiculous answer. Not at all. I think that's how you get to know your users. I have this rule um, that, that I um, apply to sort of problems like this, which is that I know the vast majority of the names of NBA players at any given time. Right. So I could, you know, for the 30 NBA teams could name probably 10 players per team, you know, if I saw them and anything that is fewer like uh, instances to look at, than there are players in the NBA. I always just say, look at the individual, you know, like, don't, don't, don't treat it like a shotgun approach, just rifle shot, you know, like look at the individual instances, because if I, you know, through a you know dumb hobby that I shouldn't care too much about, always know every NBA player's name and could spot them from a photo, then it probably makes sense to sort of treat, you know, in this case, job production plans that individually, like just get to know them, you know, each week. And, um, you know, uh, most insight comes from either zooming way into the details or way out at the macro. And there's relatively little insight in my experience that comes from sort of like gazing sort of in the mid horizon. You know, so so I guess my answer is that, you know, we we 
we had this sort of theoretical take in the first place where we, we zoom out and look at the entire macro horizon and imagine everything that could possibly happen. And now it's time to zoom in close at the individual details to see what we can learn in the particulars. And, you know, when that feels like it's getting mm, exhausted, like we've learned everything we can learn, then we'll zoom back out, you know, back to see if we can, you know, sort of widen the aperture even more to then connect this with broader topics like efficiency. That makes sense. So I'd actually like to dig a little bit into the technical implementation. So when a job is finished, is it an active record callback that is going through the algorithm to determine whether or not there was an inconsistency? Like, how does that work? Oh, yeah, sure. So it's, it's, a, it's a good question. So we actually have, I mean, it's not technically a state machine, but we, we basically have um, uh, the job production plans uh, go through um, transitions that are sort of managed by something like a state machine. So <clears throat> literally, there's a class called a job production plan completion class. And when the status changes of a plan from approved to complete, I think that that's the only, you know, valid um, transition allowed um, of that sort. So, you know, there was the only way you can get to complete is from approved. Um, when it goes through that transition after um, the status has been changed to complete, we kick off an async job in the sort of an after perform hook on um, that transition. And, and actually to take a step back, so we have a, a sort of a generic class called um, an action model. And any of these uh, transition, you know, state transition or status transition um, services that exist all inherit from this, this class called uh, um, an action model. And they're, they all represent sort of a state change, like a state machine state change of a, of, of a class. And then you can hook into the sort of life cycle of the status change before the status is changed, after the status is changed, before it's validated to get the idea. Um, so we have, so there's a job production plan completion um, class, which is a subclass of an action model that then implements the after perform hook and in the after perform hook which only happens if this this state change was successfully completed in that hook we uh, schedule an async job that does the detection and creation okay and so should there be an inconsistency what is the experience for the users are they receiving an email are they supposed to fill something out? Like, how is this being automated so that way it's getting recorded? Yeah, so so they're already, and, and I think this is kind of a fun topic. So we already had a, a pretty full-featured capability around incidents. So we've had for, I don't know, maybe six months or something, the ability to create production incidents and then track their entire life cycle, you know, with comments and, yeah, you know, root cause analysis and action items and the whole, the whole enchilada really. Um, but so we are, we already had that. And what we're doing is creating those incidents just automatically. So when the production incident gets created, yeah, there's a notification that goes out to the assignee and then there can be team members that are on the production incident and those team members get notified and you know, yada, yada, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that, that enables. Um, but the, the thing that I found very fun about this feature is that, you know, we had that whole infrastructure 
to piggyback on that already works nicely. And, you know, we, 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 it, the, the, the trick was, well, can we automate the usage itself? You know, because a lot of a lot of times you hear companies, software companies or just um, software departments and non-software companies talk about adoption. And I always think about adoption in two ways. One, which is like, can we get uh, can we build features that are you know more useful to people and educate them about those features and make them more usable, etc. But but there's a whole separate topic around adoption, which is can we write software to use our software? This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is also sponsored by Indeed Prime. Are you ready to put your Rails experience to use in a job you'll love? Indeed Prime is a confidential free service that puts you in front of leading brands and tech startups with roles you're interested in. They find out what's important to you and match you with your dream job. All it takes is one free application to connect to thousands of companies in over 90 cities. Companies like Twilio, Overstock, Sling, WP Engine, PayPal, and VRBO. Skip endless resumes and get matched to employers based on your skills, experience, and your salary goals. You even get access to one-on-one technical career coaching that includes resume reviews, mock interviews, and salary negotiation tips. So whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now by going to indeedprime.com slash Ruby on Rails. Thank you to Indeed Prime for sponsoring the show. Absolutely. It's like a a microservice within your monolith, you know? Yeah. Nothing's worse than spending a ton of time writing a feature, getting excited about it, and no one uses it. When you know in your heart, based on the data, that the feature should be used and should be like a big part of the user's journey. Yeah, so my my answer in that kind of situation is always to say, well, why don't we write software that uses our software? Um, and again, that that comes from that that upstream question, which is, wait, are we building software that people use or are we building software that uses people? And, you know, in the, in this case, the production incident detector is sort of seeing what a person could see, creating the incident, and then the using people bit is saying, hey, I don't know what you know, so you take it from here, but I got it this far. And the I got it this far is pretty darn far into the process. And I think that, when you take a step back and look at, um, you know, the, the, the goal not to be just make tools that like people will discretionarily use, but rather to see the user as the, the company, because when we make business software, right? So, you know, the, the user is the company itself. That, that's who, you know, we're making the software for actually. And the extent to which we can automate the usage so that people have to do less, that's good for our customers, not bad. And um, I've, I've just been surprised over the years that that's not a more common way to look at the problem. No, that's completely fair. So, you know, really to sum up the feature, what is the absolute end goal from your side as to why you built this feature? Are you doing this because you feel that you're delivering more value to your users, making them stickier perhaps, or do you want to be able to point your finger at your software and say, hey, we had data of these jobs and the incidents prior, we implemented this feature, and now look what's happened? Mm. Well, I, I um, for better and worse, I always you know, decide uh, that we'll make features based on what I think actually like creates value, like what actually solves the problem. And um, you know, my, my belief on how you build roads 
you know, more effectively over time, but this applies to all sorts of processes, just about any processes, you know, that uh, it's about four steps. It's about um, effectively planning and that, you know, planning is the most important in and of, of the four. So imagining uh, or researching and understanding what's possible and then imagining what you're going uh, to do against that possibility and setting a plan accordingly. So that's step one. Step two is that you execute that plan um, to the best of your ability. Step three is that you uh, um, check to see how you did against what you expected. And then step four is that you make changes, you know, either to... Uh, change what you thought was possible or uh, change you know your uh, ability to plan based on what's possible or change your ability to execute based on what you planned and so um, the the vision for the feature is to help with it, it to do two things one is to help pay off the planning work that happened so that after you execute we can um, figure out where we uh, can learn something from what happened. In other words, where did execution go exactly according to plan and where did it deviate at a low level so that um, we can then remediate that deviation into a change that affects future plans. So two examples would be, let's say uh, for half of a night, you ended up being able to um, pave at you know, 65% above what you thought you could from a rate of production standpoint. So you thought you could go at 175 tons an hour and you actually go 65% above that. So that is something you want to highlight. Say, hey, those three hours where you went at 65% above the rate that you expected, there's something to learn here. And that's something to learn either is that, wait, could, could we have gone at that speed the whole time? In which case we need to, you know, increase the resources that go into um, into production and to take advantage of it, um, uh, or um, did something change? Was the did we plan for some average, even though the production was split into two? In which case, we'd want to like use fewer trucks in the the front end and then increase the trucks on the latter end. But I mean, anytime there's a deviation, there's something to change about the way that we plan or the way that we execute. And to answer your question, the vision is to to have the software help bridge the gap between execution and analysis and continuous improvement. Because in general, people are way too busy kind of just in the daily grind of things to zoom out and say, hey, you know, what can we learn from yesterday? And how can we put in place, um, you know, little project plans, little action items so that uh, our future is better because of the, the you know, deviations we experience? And, um, you know, so that, that's, that's what we're trying to get done. That's awesome. I, you know, I can't wait to follow up with you to hear how it goes. I'm, I'm sure it's going to go great. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the show to, to talk about this. I definitely think that I and the listeners alike will be a bit more thoughtful about our feature implementation and how it's going to affect our users. So thank you so much, Sean. Thanks, Brittany.